Our text this evening is Second John. It's a very small letter, just half a page. Also a somewhat enigmatic letter, at least it was for me when I read it with the thought to preach about it. And from whom is this letter, who is the writer? And to whom is this letter, who are the recipients? And about what exactly is this letter? First, the writer. John the Apostle or the Elder? Well, it doesn't really say. And as a matter of fact, none of the letters by John, 1, 2, 3, does say. John 2 and 3 say the elder without any further clarification. Not even John. And First John says nothing at all. But there are, however, strong similarities and similar features in the Gospel of John and in the first letter by John, especially in the opening sentences at the beginning, but also in the recurring themes of lightness and darkness, truth and error, life and death. And there is also a very close connection between the stated purpose of the Gospel by John You can find it in chapter 20, the verses 30 to 31, where it says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And you will find a similar purpose stated in the first letter by John in chapter 5, verse 13, where it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So you are to know the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, in order to have eternal life. And then there are also many similarities between 1 John and 2 John. Light, truth, and love are recurring themes. And also between 2 John and 3 John, for example, in the sender announcing himself as the elder, in joy about children walking in truth, and in the ending, I have much to write, but I prefer to speak face to face. So generally it is assumed that it is the Apostle John later in his life, in already, I think, the second half of the first century, maybe as late as 80 or 90 AD. By the time John was supposed to be living in Ephesus, and maybe this letter was written not so long before he was banned to Patmos, where he, as his last document, wrote Revelations, which is also the last document in the New Testament. And then about the subject, the topic this letter is about. Well, if it was written by John in 80 or 90 AD, it was a time where heresies, false teachings, and misunderstandings had already entered the church. And they took many different forms, but the two 
issues most frequently in contention, where one is Jesus' sacrifice now really enough for our justification, and the other one, the Lord Jesus, being both God and man. The only way he could be our Savior. But the topic which is very difficult to understand and was also fought over a lot. Now the Apostle Paul, we know, writes frequently about the fact that the only the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is the basis for our justification. There are long sections in the letter to the Romans and to the Galatians. But the Apostle John, who wrote probably later, often writes about the fact that the Lord Jesus is both God and man. And that appears also to be the case here, as we shall see. And then there is the recipient. Who is the recipient? Is it a female person or is it a church? The word in Greek is kuria, the female form of kurios, which is the word used for the Lord. So it could be a lady with lots of children who is widely beloved by many others in other places, according to verse 1. And then at the end, verse 13 is greeted by another elect lady, or even literally a sister again with several children. It's possible, but of course it leaves the question whether this is not assuming a very specific individual situation, the applicability of which is difficult to understand where there were apparently very few men around, and these women played a pivotal and leading position in the congregation, which in the New Testament time would have been unusual. So the alternative is to assume that the letter is written to a church, with the church being seen as the bride, curia, of Christ, the curios. And the children then are its members. And the greetings of the, at the end of the letter then come from a sister church. And in that case, John, now an elderly man, possibly the only apostle left alive, is writing to one or more churches to encourage them, to teach them, and to warn them. And it is this lesson of John's to that church that we will reflect upon tonight. And the message of 2 John for you tonight can be summarized, I think, as follows. The church, that is you, me, and us all together, are to live in truth and love. The church, that is you and me, us all together, are to live in truth and love. And we'll go very briefly, verse by verse, through this short letter, and we will discover that this letter takes maybe a minute to read, but a lifetime to live. And we will also discover that truth and love go together. Because truth without love is not real truth, and love without truth is not real love. So then let's start at the beginning at verse 1 and 2. First, there is the elder. John, probably in his 80s, after a long and eventful life, probably the only apostle left, the only eyewitness to Jesus. 
And then he writes a pastoral letter to a congregation, a church, and its members. And about that church and its members, the first thing we note, that they are chosen. By whom? By the church council, by popular vote, by hitting buttons, if you are looking at a television program. No, they are chosen by God. And that is already something to think about. Because the people that he may be writing to and writing about may have their problems and may have their mistakes, but they are chosen, called by God. And also if and when we write to and speak to and argue with other Christians, that is something that is to be kept in mind. Because unless you are certain that they are condemned, and that is quite a statement to make, They are called by God, and it is for him to judge, and he has chosen them. And then, John continues to say, he loves them, in the plural, in truth. Truth is here a noun, but I think it could be used also adverbially, as in truly, but literally it says, in truth. And the love is not limited to part of the children, Although he makes distinctions between these children in the next verse, but he loves the church and its children. And then it goes on to say that these church members are not only loved by John, but by all who know the truth. And these all could be the people mentioned at the end of the letter, possibly the congregation around John from where he wrote. It could also be congregations, it doesn't say. And then... In verse 2, it becomes even more intriguing. Because it says that he, John, and all these other believers love that church and its members because of the truth. The truth. There's a definite article here. The one that abides and lives in us. In John, the people around him and the people being written to. And that will be with us forever. Now, what truth is that? A truth in which he loves, in verse 1a, a truth that is known by all who have this love, in 1b, and a truth that is the basis for this love, in verse 2. Because, says verse 2, truth is the basis for this love. It's not preferences, it's not family ties, it's not attractive characteristics. It must be a special kind of truth. It's not truth as, you know, in a bunch of correct facts or in sums that add up or in doctrines that are right or in statements that are true. What kind of truth is it? Well, let's see. Let's move on. And then there is verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. There are two things worth noting here. The first one is that John is very specific in stating that grace, mercy, and peace are gifts from God the Father. That's a relatively straightforward observation. But he goes on also to attribute it to Jesus and to explicitly identify Jesus as the Father's Son. So John very specifically reminds his readers that Jesus is the Son of God. He is divine. 
And the second thing is that grace, mercy, and peace will be with us in truth and love. The additional clause in truth and love is probably indicating either the basis because of truth and love or a condition as long as we abide in truth and love. For this grace and mercy and peace to be owned by us. But whatever it is in both cases, the result is really the same because without truth and love there is no grace, mercy and peace. So grace, mercy, and peace, these things that we all desire in this life, are a gift from the divine Jesus, and they do not exist without truth and love. And then verse 4, it goes on to state that John was very happy that some members of the congregation walked in truth. Out of the members, some of. So the implication is that there were others who didn't. Now, walking in the Bible is hardly ever marching from A to B, but it's living your life in a certain way. And says John, living your life in truth is a commandment of God. But then, let's pause for a moment, because what is it that God had commanded in relation to his son? Well, we can read it in Luke. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Luke 9, verse 35. And John had focused on this at length. A little earlier in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, in the verses 21 to 23. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. And no one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And this is also the language that we later see back in verse 9. So the truth for John is not denying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, whose words need to be obeyed. It is living with, for, and in Christ. And obeying or believing in Christ is also the command of the Father. We see it again in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, where we read, We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And this last thought we now see reappear also here in verse 5. In verse 4, as we mentioned, he had said some, some out of your children, and some means by implication not all. Possible, of course, that he hadn't met these others, but that is, I think, a bit of a gratuitous conclusion. More likely, as John knew, that some of the members did not walk in truth. 
And in verse 5 he starts with, and now congregation, there is, as it were, a bit of a contrast. Maybe we could paraphrase, and under these circumstances that not all walk in the truth congregation, in this situation where not everyone walks in the truth but only some, I ask you that you love one another. So John doesn't start with the refutation of the error of these others, and he doesn't start with, you know, saying, put them right, keep them straight, beat them over the head with the right doctrine. In the next few verses, he will have to say something about that. But first here, there is the request to love one another. Because, verse 1, weren't they all called and chosen? And had not God reached out to these members of the congregation also? But then in verse 6, John continues. And he says that loving each other does not mean that anything goes and that regarding what is true and truth is an open field and a free for all. And that John makes clear in this verse. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. The commandment from the Father, mentioned already in verse 4, there the commandment was to walk in truth. Referred to here, in, it referred to earlier in verse 5, there was a commandment, there the commandment was to love one another. Is now in verse 6 said to apply to all. John uses the word we. The commandment is to John and to all of you, to me, and you and the members of these congregation mentioned in that letter. And we must, he says, walk in it. It, we must walk in it. It can refer to both the command, which is the closest preceding noun, or to love. Both are feminine-like word it. So it is very clear that for the apostle, walking and living your life in truth, meaning in accordance with God's commandments and in love, are interwoven and intrinsically linked together. They cannot be separated. In fact, this verse is two parallel sentences. This is the love that we walk in the commandments. And then the next one, this is the commandment that you should walk in it. And it, again, as I said, is the feminine pronoun that can refer back to both the commandment and love. But if we consider the Lord's statement that he makes in Mark 12, Mark 12, verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, that is the Lord Jesus and some other teachers, and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked of him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And I think it's clear that most likely this refers back to love. 
And then we come to verse 7. Because we heard that love and truth go together, but the apostle has now also prepared the ground for a further conclusion that he states in this verse 7. And that conclusion conclusion is that love does not mean that the truth can be ignored. Some things are true and commanded, and other things are not. He emphasized in verse 6 that we must walk in the commandments. And why is that so emphasized? Well, because some of them didn't. And therefore, he starts verse 7 in the Greek with because many deceivers who do not acknowledge and so on. So apparently some others in the congregation denied the humanity of Jesus, which is what these texts refer to. Do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now obviously Jesus had already come. So the present tense used here is probably used to emphasize that Jesus still has his human nature. And apparently some in the congregation denied this. And indeed, we know from early church history and from debates at the early councils and from the resulting early confessions that the most vigorous heresies in the early Christian period were the denial of either Christ's divinity or his humanity. The first one, his divinity, John touches upon in verse 3, where he explicitly refers to Jesus Christ as the Father's Son, and the second one, his humanity, here in verse 7. There was a view, there were many views, but there was a view stemming from the Greek culture which considered the actual world inferior to an ideal world and valued the physical less than the spiritual. And that translated in many heresies, one of them called docetism from the Greek verb dokain, to seem, to appear. And they taught that Jesus was divine and only appeared to be human and that this divine Jesus did not truly suffer. And the consequences thereof are, of course, major, because if the Lord cannot suffer in place of human beings if he is not a human himself, we would lose what is called substitutionary atonement. And also, we would lose the consolation that we have in the letter to the Hebrews, where we are assured in chapter 2, that human, that Jesus as a human being understands our sufferings and weaknesses. Hebrews chapter 2, the verses 14 to 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And that then is repeated in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And that consolation, that we have a Savior who understands our weaknesses, we would lose. And therefore, John, in this letter, he does not mince his words, 
People who deny that Jesus came in the flesh are deceivers and are against him, the Antichrist. They are deceivers because it is not the truth. And they are against Christ because it denies who he is and what he did. And then we come to the verses 8 and 9. John warns that accepting such a view and denying the Lord Jesus as God in verse 3 or as man in verse 6 has serious consequences. You would lose what we, John includes himself here as the evangelist, have worked for. Your salvation, the grace, mercy and peace mentioned in verse 3. And he urges the congregation to be on their guard so that they may not miss out on their full reward i.e. the forgiveness of sins and salvation. For, he says, if you do not abide and remain in the teaching of or concerning the Christ and reject him as either God or as a human being who suffered for your sin, then you do not have God nor the Son. And then there is also the positive affirmation of when you do accept Christ's teaching. The apostle clearly links God and Jesus tightly together. Because with the atonement, the salvation through Christ, the divine Son, you have access to God as your Father, while he is the Almighty. Because that's what John had been saying earlier in chapter 20 of his gospel. The Lord Jesus, he is the way, the light, and the truth. And then in verse 10 and 11, John draws some practical conclusions. He insists that somebody who wants to bring another teaching than Christ should not be welcomed. Now, we should keep in mind here the situation of many of the New Testament congregations. They often met at somebody's house, and often also the preacher. Many of them, like the apostles, were itinerant preachers, then stayed there. A member of the congregation might own a larger house with an inner courtyard and rooms around it. And that is where the congregation then met to listen to that traveling preacher. So in welcoming somebody in your house who came to teach, you so gave him, as it were, a platform to make known his, in this case, erroneous message. So I don't think the text suggests that you should leave an unbeliever or a misguided church member out in the cold or in the rain, but it indicates that that they should not be allowed into the pulpit. For then you would be complicit and also responsible for his evil antichrist work. So John does not negate his earlier comment about love, also towards those erring children and church members. But he is pretty clear about the fact that the truth about Christ matters. And therefore somebody who denies or ignores the truth about Christ should not be given he says, a platform to spread his message in church. And then finally, in the verses 12 and 13, he finishes his letter and he says goodbye. Interestingly, he says that he has much more on his mind, what it was, warnings, encouragement, teachings, we don't know. What he does say is that speaking face to face, literally mouth to mouth, is much better. He says the same in, John, in the third letter of John. 
Dealing with difficult questions is much better in a personal contact than in more distant formal way of doing it through writing. And I think John is here both practical and pastoral. And he is consistent with his earlier comments about truth and love. And also in the final greeting, the phrase, the children of your elect sister, becomes, like the expression, I think, of verse 1, more comprehensible if we understand him to refer to a church, to another congregation. So then briefly in closing, what are the lessons that we can learn from this little letter? Well, in the first place, the truth John mentions are of paramount importance. Jesus' divinity and humanity. Because these truths define our salvation, and they need to be guarded. And in this letter, Jesus' humanity humanity was the issue. Today, I think it's more likely his divinity which is questioned. But Jesus was both. It is, as it says in the Heidelberg Catechism, What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? And the answer is one who is true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is at the same time true God. And that is especially true in our day because the Lord Jesus cannot be reduced to a good and noble man who gave a shining example of gracious living. He was God and man who suffered for our sins and so brings us through his grave grace, mercy, and peace. And that truth needs to be upheld like it is in this letter in the verses 3 and 7. And then the second lesson is that propagating a deviation from these fundamental truths cannot be allowed because that would be the opposite of love. Because the people, the church members whom John loves, would lose both God and the Son. That's what it says in the verses 9 to 11. But then in the third place, towards erring and confused people whom God has called, love is required. But now, under these circumstances, Congregation, I ask you to love one another. So anger, resentment, and harshness have no place in these debates. That is the conclusion of verse 5. Because truth and love, they go together. And we, the Lord's congregation, have to live in truth and love. That is the message of this little letter. A minute to read and a lifetime to live. Amen. Let us pray.